0: Our sermon this morning is taken from Luke chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6 as we continue on in the gospel according to Luke. So I would encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. As together we are going to be considering the ministry or the Luke's account of the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. But before we turn our attention to the Word of God, let's go to the God of the Word. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, I do pray now that you would help us to turn our attention away uh, from the things that distract us so very easily. We know that whenever we come to your Word, we are entering into spiritual warfare. We know that the evil one has no desire for us to pay attention. He will call us to other things. He'll distract us with the little distraction devices we carry around in our pockets every day. He will cause us to think on the things that are ahead of us, to worry and be anxious. Uh, to, he'll bring up old grudges in our minds. He'll, oh Lord, use everything that he can. And while we can pay attention during sports events and movies and so on, because he has no interest in distracting us from them, oh Lord, we know that he will exert every, everything that he can and use the world and the flesh as well. We pray, Lord, that you would hedge us in, therefore, and that you would help us to concentrate our attention upon what it is that Luke had to tell us, this faithful servant, this physician who accompanied your Apostle Paul and who set down an accurate record of the ministry of Christ. Help us to remember these things, because these are the most important things that we can possibly be studying. These are the things of eternity. Everything else, generally, that we think about and talk about are the things of time. They pass away. This is timeless and eternal and so very important. So help us, O Lord, to concentrate. And, O Lord, be pleased to use these words for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Luke chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6, I do remind you this is the word of the Lord. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to stop there. (laughs) The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Last week, Luke gave us an insight into the childhood of Jesus when he was uh, but a young boy, uh, a boy who had just become a son of the commandments and who had been taken to the Passover. And he had gone to the temple, you remember he had lingered even after his parents had left Jerusalem, and his parents were uh, grieved uh, at his loss and went looking for him, and they found him in the temple, astonishing the rabbis, the teachers of the law, with his understanding and with his questions, with their great insight. But after that event, the Bible is silent for 18 years. We don't hear anything more about how Christ grew up and and developed. We can guess at his childhood some of the things that are said uh, later on, for instance, when he returns to Nazareth and he preaches in the synagogue here. uh, His uh, townsfolk or his fellow uh, citizens that he grew up with, they say, Is this not the carpenter's son? And are his brothers and sisters not with us? Isn't this the son of Joseph and Mary? Where did he get all these things? And so on. So we understand that he lived a fairly normal life in Nazareth during that time but now his ministry is about to begin the time had become uh, had come for Christ to begin that public ministry now the time is at hand, but something still has to happen first before that public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ can begin. His forerunner, the prophet, has to come and make smooth the paths. Now there's, uh, there's a lot of contention about what is meant by uh, when John uses those phrases from Isaiah the prophet about preparing the way of the Lord. We, we're clear about what he meant by being the forerunner, preparing the way, one who went before someone else, uh, Declaring uh, like a, a, a page would in uh, the uh, Middle Ages who would run before the king saying, the king is coming, the king is coming. We know that's partly what he was called upon to do. But in terms of making the way smooth, they, they talk about is he, is he dealing with the hearts of the people or is this a literal reference to what would happen when a king approached a city? You remember they did not have uh, that wonderful invention of tarmac. Uh, we don't um, appreciate it enough until we go to places where there are no roads for For instance, or where the roads are falling apart. Places like uh, uh, Elder King and I encounter in Uganda and Rwanda and the missions teams that we go out there. Um, Your car journey usually consists out there of the whole way. um, Unless you're on one of the Chinese Belt and Roads, uh, which you know they're incredibly smooth, but you remember this is really the broad path uh, that the Chinese are constructing for uh, this nation. But in any event, um, normally it's a, a very bumpy ride, and you know sometimes you get there and your teeth are kind of out of joint from having gone over all of these potholes. Well, the townsfolk did not want the kings in that age to—I I mean, God forbid—that his carriage, uh, or if he was being carried on a litter, the the people would be stuck in a rut, or that they would get. Uh, they They would get caught in a mud puddle or something like that. So when they knew the king was coming, what would they do? They would hurry out and they would make smooth the road for the king so that he would be delighted with his people when he arrived, not having been stuck in mud or having gone over many potholes and things like that. That is possibly what is being referred to in uh, this section. Or it may be that he is dealing with the hearts of his people. But nonetheless, Uh, We know that he was, uh, Luke is telling us, that John is the one who came to prepare the road for the Messiah to walk down. Now, I want you to take a look, uh, before we get into the rest of of this and begin to to consider it, uh, I want you to look at how Luke begins his narrative of the ministry of John. He doesn't start with a phrase like, once upon a time. Neither does he start with a phrase like, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or anything like that, Uh, because that's how one begins stories. That's how one begins legends and fairy tales. Uh, Things that, you know, that that kind of beginning clues the reader into the fact that this is going to be a rip-roaring story, but that's all it is. It's just a story. It didn't really happen. I'm sorry, kids. There never really was a man called Luke Skywalker. But, you know, there is a man called Mark Hamill who's made a lot of money from Luke Skywalker. But, moving on, that's a clue that we're just about to encounter a good story. Luke isn't doing that. Luke is going to clue us into the fact that these things really happened. Luke, the historian, wants us to know that the events that he's about to write about were things that happened in time and space. They really did occur. So he tells us who the people were, who were reigning uh, at the time that these things happened, where they were reigning, and he gives us an absolute reference point, for instance. He tells us this was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who had succeeded Augustus Caesar. And then he goes on, uh, he goes about identifying the other rulers of the region at the time. Now, I must tell you, skeptics of the Bible for many, many years, and the world is filled with skeptics, people, you know, it's funny, you hand somebody a copy of, uh, you know, a history of Europe during the Middle Ages, and they don't look at it going, hmm, I suspect most of this is fairy tales and made up, and then throw it away, or spend the rest of their life attempting to debunk the book that you just handed them, hand them a Bible. And the man's, uh, man's rebellious heart is inclined to say, I'm going to do everything that I can to prove that this isn't true. Why? Because of what it says about me and my heart. I don't want it to be true, therefore I'm going to try my hardest to prove to myself primarily perhaps, and then to the rest of the world, it isn't true. So skeptics, for instance, uh, when they looked at that uh, those time reference, those historical markers by which Luke is telling us this really happened, they looked at it, And they grudgingly admitted, yes, there was a Tiberius. Okay, there was a Pontius Pilate, who was the governor in Palestine at the time of Tiberius. Yes, there was a Herod, uh, one of the grandsons of Herod the Great. And then there was a Philip also, his brother. And they all ruled at the time that Luke mentions. But then they got to Lysanias, and they said, ha ha! Luke, we've got you. Now we have you. Licinius is mentioned by Josephus as ruling Abilene north of Galilee, but he died in 34 BC. Long before the events you're recording, ha <laughs> we win! And they went about with their heads held high, saying, "Ha <laughs> ha, we've proven Luke was wrong. But then, as so often, an inscription was found in Abilene. And I don't mean the one in Texas. It was discovered mentioning another Lysanias who was tetrarch, that is, district ruler during the reign of Tiberius. The inscription was for the dedication of a temple and says, for the salvation of the Lord's imperial and their whole household by Nymphaeus, a freedman of Lysanias, the tetrarch. Now, Lord's Imperial was a technical title that was given jointly to Emperor Tiberius and his mother, Livia, what a mother, Uh, the widow of Augustus. So this inscription must have been made uh, between A.D. 14, when Tiberius became emperor, and A.D. 29, when Livia died. So Luke was right, and the so-called historians of the time, the skeptics, were wrong. Now... It's a shame, but that that uh, amazing coincidence doesn't convince the 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 skeptics at all. I'm I'm surprised that they haven't actually you know started to make something out of the fact that wait a minute there's an Abilene in Texas and Texas was founded in 1881 and so you know anything anything but God is the general rule with the the skeptics there, but they they continue on. And archaeology continues to unearth things that prove them wrong as it must because this is the truth, brothers and sisters. That's the thing we know. Anyway, as we look at these verses, I'm going to be focusing on three primary points. All of them will be dealing with John the Baptist and his ministry. The first point is this. It's the time at which John began to minister. And I'm not talking just about the chronological time. I'm about the the, the air, what was going on in the world at that point in time. Second, The second thing is... We need to take a look briefly at the calling of John to the ministry and what we can learn about that. And then third is the work that John was called to the ministry to do. So three things to consider. You'll recall that uh, we've already read of the miraculous events uh, surrounding the nativity or the birth of John in Luke chapter 1. We remember how his mother had him after the point at which it was normal for women to become pregnant, after she had gone through menopause. And we've discovered how it was prophesied that he would be the one called to this ministry of preparation. Literally, his father was told by angels this would be his calling, uh, that he would be the messenger spoken of in Malachi 3.1 who would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord himself. Malachi 3.1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This is the messenger who went before. Now, the last thing we heard about John the Baptist was related at the end of chapter one of Luke. And that was, and the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance in Israel. And the story picks up with the announcement or the account of his public appearing when he began to enter into that messenger ministry that he had been given from the very beginning. So... Let's talk about the time when John the Baptist began to minister. What Luke records allows us to know the time at which John began his ministry. We can actually fix the chronological date fairly accurately. Uh, From that, we know the time that Jesus began his public ministry uh, to within roughly six months. Uh, The time was around 27 AD. Now, I know some of you are doing quick mathematics, and they are like, wait a minute, Jesus came into his ministry when he was about 30 years old, and isn't he born at zero? Isn't that the, uh, you know, zero AD or one AD, something like No, well, the, the, the BC AD uh, cut isn't exactly at the time of Jesus' birth. It's just we need to remember, of course, A.D. and B.C. What's the great event that that marked the beginning of the New Age? It is, of course, the beginning of the life of Jesus Christ. And it's not exact, but uh, the time was around 27 A.D. when uh, John began his public ministry. It also gives us a picture of the time, believe it or not. We have this list of rulers. And what a sorry list of characters they were. All of them were distinguished not by great acts or magnanimity. They were all distinguished by great sins. We have Tiberius, the stepson of Augustus, ruler of the known world at the time. Uh, his latter reign was, was noted by the most disgusting depravity. It's uh, it said that he picked Caligula to be his uh, successor, mostly because he knew that Caligula was one of the only men in Rome who would be thought of as worse than he was, more depraved uh, than he was. He was renowned for his ruthlessness, uh, for his purging, and for a total lack of compassion, no compassion whatsoever. All of the rest are similar and that what really distinguished them was their evil, and in many cases, their maladministration, the way that they mistreated their subjects instead of ruling them well. Now, there is one note about an oddity in the text. You will note, if you are a student, and I hope you all are, students of the Old Testament, that there's only supposed to be how many high priests at one time? One, right? We're only supposed to have one high priest, okay? The Old Testament makes that very clear. But we read in 3.2, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, the Greek text is actually singular there. Uh, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you will remember that, uh, as we said, it's the position of a single man, not two men. Hence, high priest, not priest. So, what's up here? Well, in the absence of a king, High priests had an important political role to play within the state. They were the moderators, so to speak, of the Sanhedrin, the governing authority amongst the Jews. And Annas had been high priest and the head of the Sanhedrin from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15, but then he was dismissed by Valerius Gratus, the Roman governor, who was displeased with the decisions that he had been making. The Jews disputed whether or not the Roman governor had the ability to dismiss a high priest, however. And their their general consensus, although they had to go along with it or be crushed, their general consensus was, no, you cannot dismiss a high priest. A high priest is dismissed by God when he dies. So Annas uh, still controlled things behind the scenes, especially when his son-in-law Caiaphas was the high priest. Annas was essentially the puppet master. And the Jews knew it. That's why, for instance, you remember when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, note this, and you'll note this in uh, Luke when we get to it, he's taken to Annas first, not the Caiaphas, the man who had the title. So all of this just helps us to point out the sorry state of of Israel at the time. It's dominated by a pagan power. It's arbitrarily divided up. It's misruled by evil puppets of Rome. It's divided into warring factions. We have Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Zealots, and most of them had forgotten the gospel. We know that there were people who remembered the gospel. We have already met with Anna and Simeon who delighted that their Savior had been born before they died. But so many people in Israel at this time had forgotten their Lord and Savior and his proper worship. But this brings us, I hope, to the first application, which is simply this. You and I look at the world And we see the evil. We see the evil that our rulers do. We see the evil of the society, the fractured way uh, that America, for instance, has been split into essentially warring parties. We have almost a, a civil war brewing just below the surface and so on. But yet when we look at Israel, that was the situation for them as well. It was very similar. But note this. God began his great work of redemption In the midst of those circumstances, he began it under the most dark and desperate conditions. And again and again, God does that. He brings about a great work advancing redemption just when everything seems to be at its worst. Gideon at the time of the Midianites, for instance, when they were dominating Israel. Or or David at the time of the Philistine uh, persecution of Israel. God does this to teach us to depend upon him. When we are weak, he is strong. When it seems to be darkest, the light is about to break. That should give us great confidence, shouldn't it? It should let us know that God is not dependent in any way upon human history. It also should lead us to... to, Understand that when times are better, so to speak, economically and perhaps culturally and in terms of leadership, that doesn't necessarily mean that this is a time when when God's redemptive work is about to advance. It's usually when it's worst in the world that his uh, work is done. So it is this time of great spiritual darkness where John, the prophet in the wilderness, is called to the ministry, where he comes on the scene. That brings us to the calling of John to the ministry, the second point. Now, Israel at this point had been 400 years without a prophet to speak the word of God to his people. There were 400 years, you remember, between Malachi and Matthew. And John's call didn't come by his own will. It was not that John was you know, happily sitting in the wilderness munching away on his locusts and occasionally eating honey when he couldn't get his locusts and so on. And one day he decided that he was going to go to Jerusalem and begin preaching and baptizing. That's not the case. We read instead that the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. God was the one who called him into his ministry. John received a message from heaven, the internal calling of the Spirit, and under the impulse of that message, he began this awesome work. So what was John ultimately? What was he? Was he a prophet? Well, yes, he was. But he was also a minister of the gospel. He came to point people to Christ And to do the appointed work of ministry. And he took up that work because he was called to it. And the same application should be made to ministers of the gospel today. A man should not be self-appointed in his work. A woman certainly should not be self-appointed in this particular work. Rather, it is God who calls men to be ministers. Nobody should suddenly move into an office on Ramsey Street, put up a shingle, miracle, amazing deliverance ministries, prophet, apostle, founder, bishop, and high priest of God, so and so. That is not the case, brothers and sisters. And that's one of the reasons why, and this is just an aside, that, that the Presbyterians demand that one receive a call from the people of God rather than being appointed by one person. And installed as the Episcopals and the Roman Catholics do. I've always found it to be an awful imposition. I was speaking with um, a member of a congregation. Uh, It was in a Methodist uh, congregation here in town. And their beloved pastor was being replaced. Not because the congregation wanted him to be replaced, but because the bishop didn't particularly like him and wanted him moved out of her particular area. So she had decided to replace him. That can't happen by God's grace within this church. You need to remember (laughs) that you are the ones who call your officers, and you are the ones who also have the power to dismiss them if they begin to go off the beaten track. The presbytery uh, needs to look into that, but when a man is no longer ministering in the way that he should be, he should be removed from office. He shouldn't be self installed, and he should not be staying in that position until uh, his heart stops, and that's the only thing that removes him. Men should not be self appointed in the ministry. Rather, there should be the inner calling and the manifest approbation of God's people. And then the decision of a court of the church. These three things need to come into action. Now, in uh, we, Ephesians 4:10 through 13, note this: speaking of Christ. We read that Paul said, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. It is Christ who gives his servants to his church. We should not find men where Christ has not given them. Uh, And this sometimes is hard because we'll look at a church and we, we know we need men in the diaconate. We need men to be elders and so on. And what so often happens is that men will find them where Christ has not actually called them. But it should be the case that we know with fair certainty that Christ has called this man and thus gifted him. If you are not gifted for a particular ministry, you're not called to it. And if you do not have, for instance, uh, an aptness for teaching, then you are not called to the office of the eldership. So it is the case that Christ appoints men and he gifts them, and then God's people acknowledge that and call them. All the parts have to be present. So John is raised up, he's gifted, and then he's called to this particular ministry, which brings us to part three, which is the work that John was called to the ministry to do. We read that John was called to preach and to baptize. Now, just a quick note, we'll discuss this later on. Um, This is not Christian baptism. We know that because, one, it wasn't appointed by Jesus Christ directly, and secondly, it's not in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a ministry of repentance, not the baptism that we confessed uh, earlier on. But what was he preaching? Let's talk about that. Well, all ministers in every age have been called to preach properly the same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, either as the one who is coming or the one who has come. But all of the preaching, all of the right preaching of ministers of the gospel should refer to the Messiah, should go back to Christ or go forward to Christ. The prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah in particular, they spoke of the coming, of the the delight of Israel, the blessing to the nations, the light who was to come into the world. And that is who John was speaking of. Verses 4 and 5, you remember, are taken from Isaiah chapters 40 and 52, and they speak of the calling of the prophet who would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. John comes to a crooked people, a people who had left the narrow path, uh, who had twisted the word of God, and John comes to make the crooked straight. He's going to proclaim the Lord's way of salvation. And he's going to call on all men, note this, not just Jews, he's going to call upon all men to repent and believe. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that began to be uh, fulfilled when Roman soldiers, for instance, came out to hear his preaching. We see the particularism of the Jews being broken down here. The gospel now is going to go to the ends of the earth. And we see uh, a foretelling of that, a foreshadowing of that in John's ministry, which would apply not just to the people of God. Now, we remember that Israel is the visible church in the Old Testament. All right, that is the assembly of God, to become a member of that visible church. And church, remember, is a word that simply means ecclesia. Okay? The, the Greek word ecclesia is translated church in the English, but that word ecclesia means assembly. And it corresponds with the Old Testament word. Where do we get ecclesia from? We get it from the Jewish translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, the Septuagint. The word in the Old Testament is kahal. All of those words, kahal, ecclesia, church, they all mean the same thing assembly. The assembling together of God's people. That is the church. Now, to enter into the church in the Old Testament, you had to become a Jew. You had to cross over boundaries that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. You had to go through circumcision. You had to go through a ceremonial washing, a a baptism. And this baptism was an outward sign and seal of the work of the Spirit in changing your heart and making you part of that assembly that God was gathering As was said in Ezekiel 36.25, you remember the Lord said "Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And that water washing was a sign of the cleansing that accompanied the work of the Holy Spirit, the taking away of sin and the putting in of the Spirit and the building them up in the commandments of God. Now John comes saying, and this would have amazed the people at the time, he comes saying that even Jews must receive this baptism now. They must have the baptism of repentance, not just Gentile converts. And it's a further indication that it is not hereditary membership in the nation of Israel descending literally from Abraham that saves men, but faith in the Lord's Messiah. Zechariah 13.1 says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness, to wash them away. And so John comes preaching and he comes telling them the day of the Lord, the promised day, when the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, has come and he urges them to repent and to believe For the forgiveness of their sins. What is he doing? He is preparing a people who have become spiritually and morally degenerate. And who had wrongly begun to believe that the Messiah who was coming. Would be someone who was there specifically just to wipe out the Romans. And reestablish the kingdom of Israel as an earthly kingdom. What does John do? He shows them your problem. Your big problem is not the Romans. The Romans have the same problem you do. You're all sinners. You're all rebels and enemies against God. He shows them their sin. He shows them their deep spiritual need. And and he is going to rightly point out there are many failures to keep God's law. John is going to sound, as a result, quite harsh. But that is because this harshness is needed to awaken a slumbering people. They need that. When a house is burning, for instance, you don't creep around whispering, hello, hello, your, your house is on fire. You know, or knock gently. House is burning down. Come on, wiki wiki. Now, what do you do? You go and you, you shout, you scream, your house is on fire. You call them on the phone. You, you do everything you can. Get out. You're going to perish if you don't. Get out of there! You bang on the door. You break the window. You do whatever you need to. But what happens when you wake someone up who wants to keep sleeping? They get angry! When they were small, my wife used to warn the kids when I was taking a nap, don't wake up, brown bear! Oh, yeah. Why did you wake me up? Ah! you're on fire. No, I don't care. (laughs) Let me go back to sleep. Um, That, unfortunately, is still the case when the gospel is being preached. People who are asleep and perishing need to be awakened. That's what ministers have to do. Now, John's message, unfortunately, is going to be rejected by those who refuse to accept that they need a Messiah. Because they are self-righteous. They think that their righteousness is enough. That The Pharisees hold on to this idea that their own righteousness is enough. The theological liberals of the time, the Sadducees, they don't even think that there is life after death. Why would they need to, to convert? We're just concerned with what happens in this world. We're just hoping that the status quo continues. And we continue at the top. And we own the temple. They didn't see any need in their dead formalism for a Savior. They simply get upset. Why? Because their hearts are dead and stony, and they are spiritually asleep and do not want to be awakened. But John comes to show them they need to wake up. There's only one way to heaven. And he directs them to the celestial city by the only way, the God-appointed way, through faith in the Messiah. He points to Jesus later on, we'll see this, and says... Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not only of the Jewish people, who takes away the sin of the world. He points him out. And those who receive his message receive it because they've had hearts that have been made ready to receive that message. They've been spiritually awakened. So that's my third application. John came to prepare the way for the work of Christ. Repentance, though alone, was not sufficient. If it was, Jesus wouldn't have needed to have died on the cross. All God would have had to have done was flooded Israel with preachers of repentance. But repentance cannot atone for sin. No repentance can justify us before God. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do so. And so does John who will direct the men of his time to Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. That's the message that John was preaching in AD 27. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wake up. You are in danger. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. You need a savior. That's the message he was preaching. That's the message every preacher of the gospel should still be preaching. Not you're okay. Continue sleeping. In fact, let me massage you while you're asleep. They're there. You're fine. You're fine. I'm fine. Who told you you can't achieve all your dreams? Hey, hey, hey. Send me some money. I like money. Um, but unfortunately, that is a message that we hear all too often. We have the liberals of our time and their dead formalism. Oh, they love their gowns and their robes and processing up the aisle with the gold. Blah, 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 blah. Tradition, tradition, tradition. And money. That was the Sadducees. We see that in liberalism within so many, not just the Christian faith, but so many traditions here. Reform Judaism is all tradition, but without any way of salvation. And then, of course, we have the the Pharisees of our own age, the people who teach moralism, who proclaim uh, that you can fix yourself without the gospel message. But the message that you need to hear, brothers and sisters, is a message that will step on your toes at times. It's that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. And I know I'm going to... I have offended many people in my time. I hope I've offended them only with the gospel, though, not with myself. Brothers and sisters, my job, my calling, the calling of every good minister is to wake you up and show you where to flee to and then to help you to tell others how to go about waking them up and telling them where to flee. That's our calling. That's the gospel message. That's the law and the gospel. And it needs to be proclaimed just as it was in 27 AD. You have a calling, brothers and sisters, to make straight the way of the Lord in this time and in this age, even in its great darkness with all of its evil leaders and so on. The problem is not political parties. The problem is not even evil nations. The problem, brothers and sisters, is the darkness of our own hearts, our own rebellion. Your friends, your relatives, even if they were freed from political bondage, they would still have the problem of their own heart to deal with. And they can't fix themselves. What do they need? They need the gospel message. And so it is your job, just as much as it was John's job, to point to Christ and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including yours. You need to flee down. Go before it's too late and do whatever you can to wake them up. I'm not saying break their windows. Please don't say that, but anything short of that, pound on their doors. Tell them you need a Savior and his name is Jesus. Let's go before him now. God our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you woke up the world, that you sent John as your messenger to, to shake people awake. And I pray, Lord, that you would remind us that our calling is the same as John's, to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Lord, that they will never, though, hear that message unless you do the work of changing their hearts, and we pray that you would. May your word be made effectual through the Holy Spirit, and we pray you would give us strength, vigor, and courage as we proclaim a gospel to a lost and dying nation. We pray this